We, um, we are in the book of Acts, and if anybody needs a Bible, there's Bibles up there, uh, and pens, and there's a notebook if you need to take notes, but we're in the book of Acts, and just as a recap, because we've been away for two weeks now, and I, I, want, I want to set the context just a little bit so that you will um, so that you'll know what's going on because context is important. It always is in the Bible. You, you can't just take stuff out of context and, and understand the big picture value of what's happening. And Luke's purpose in writing this is, remember, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus to accurately document God's plan executed by the Holy Spirit first through Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and now through Jesus' followers in the Acts of the Apostles. And Luke divides Acts into six sections, if you remember. And, and, and at the end of every section, the, the words either the church multiplied or the church increased or the word multiplied, the word increased is kind of the marker for those sections. In Acts 1, Jesus calls His followers to teach His message. Repent and believe. That was the message that He taught. That was their message. You see it all through Acts. They were also to teach His priority, God's kingdom. And a lot of times, when we think in America about the Gospel, we only think about, well, Jesus saved me. No, it wasn't just about Him saving you. If you go back to Isaiah 52, when it talks about salvation, that word in the Greek is euangelion. And in Isaiah, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, the same word, euangelion, which is good news, says, yes, your salvation, but it also adds this, that our God reigns. Our God's in control. And, and the fact that Jesus died on the cross... Yes, it made it possible for you to be in relationship to God, but if God doesn't reign, it doesn't matter. That's a big thing. And that's why you can't divorce the, the lordship of Jesus from the saviorhood of Jesus. And yet, churches all over the country teach that message. They make it about you, about us. It's not about us, it's about Him. He has created a people and wants us to be in relationship to be His instruments in a world. We are broken healers out trying to be His messengers because there's so many of His people who have not yet bowed their knee to Him. It's not about us just getting our ticket stamp to get on a train to heaven. And Luke is just laying this out. That's what it means to be about His kingdom work. He also wants us to trust His power, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not been given back in Acts 1. And he's telling them, you go wait till you get power from on high. And they did. They waited and it came in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, he had this big supernatural reveal. Remember, they're all there. The Holy Spirit comes. They start speaking in languages they never studied for. They're at the temple. It's during one of the feasts. There's thousands and thousands of people there. They're drawn to the sound of the mighty rushing wind sound. They hear them speaking in their own language that Jesus of Nazareth is Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who was just crucified a little earlier at Passover, 
is now they're proclaiming this Jesus was resurrected and is Messiah. And for the first time, people are hearing it in a native tongue other than Hebrew. They're hearing God's prophecies from the Old Testament in a native tongue other than Hebrew. They're all these different languages. And that was a sign of God's judgment on the Hebrew nation at that point because it was prophesied and we saw that in chapter 2. And, and we saw that as these apostles go back to the temple in chapter 3, Peter and John, uh, and they're preaching, it, it ruffles the feathers of the leaders. In chapter 4, uh, first of all, let me go back to chapter 2 where they preached and they were sharing this message and 3,000 people came into the church that day. So the church went from 120 to 3,000 like that. They didn't have a building. They didn't have a budget. They didn't have anything except for 3,000 people and about 120 disciple makers. Now think about that. We've got budgets. We've got buildings. But we don't have disciple makers. It's not about the plans. It's not about the money. It's not about having the right building. It's about having the right people and, and doing God's mission. And so these 120 began discipling these people that day with the, the leadership of the apostles, the 12 apostles. And then they go back. Peter and John go back in chapter 4. And when they go back in chapter 4, they heal a man. This guy's begging. He says, hey, will you give me some money? He doesn't ask to be healed. He wants money. And they heal him. And Peter says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he and John are used by God to heal this man who was lame for over 40 years. A creative miracle. This infuriated the, the Pharisees and the leaders, the Sadducees, because they said in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That was a problem because they crucified Jesus of Nazareth. And, and only God could heal a man like that. So that puts them in a real bad way. But what, notice what they did. They didn't discredit what they said. They just told them to be quiet. They didn't deny what had happened. Because why? We saw last time we were together, we saw that these men were undeniable witnesses. Their, their, their witness was undeniable. What happened could not be denied. And you know, I shared with you guys that day that your testimony of what God's done in your life is undeniable. But are you sharing that? The power of a testimony, we're going to see that today and why it's so important for purity to be in the church because it diminishes the power of the testimony when there's impurity there. And, and you're okay with it. Because God has never been about impurity. From the beginning, He's dealt with impurity. And we're going to see some examples of that today in the Old Testament. But an undeniable witness was there in the, the Peter and John. We also saw they were uncompromising warriors. These men were told, don't speak about Jesus of Nazareth anymore. And they said, listen, we've got to speak about Him. You've got to decide whether it's right or wrong in the eyes of God. But we've got to speak because we know what we saw, we know what we experienced, and we've got to do it. What's going to happen here in this country when they say, hey, it's illegal to talk about Jesus? Are you going to do it? 
It's illegal to meet like this. Are you going to do it? People in China do it every day. People in North Korea do it every day. People in the Middle East do it every day. Some of them in China, they're being tortured right now. Their secret police are going in, pulling them out of these kind of meetings, secret meetings, and torturing them to, and brainwashing them to deny Jesus. Happened in Canada. Easter Sunday. Yeah. It's happening in a lot of places. The question is, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Shoot, we got all the freedom in the world right now and we don't do it. What's going to happen when they start bringing external pressure on us? Because Satan, we saw that persecution always comes from Satan. He hates God, he hates his people, and he hates the followers of Jesus. And he will do everything within his power to keep you from not talking about him. And so we saw that they had an undeniable witness last time we were together. In chapter 4, we, uh, we saw that they were uncompromising warriors. We also saw they were unstoppable prayers and worshipers because what did they do? They went from that meeting when they were released because they couldn't deny what was going on and they had nothing to do to stop them. They go back and the first thing they do is they pray for more boldness. They weren't satisfied that they had done it once. They said, we need to ask God for more boldness. They were prayers. They were with Him. They wanted to get their marching orders from the king. And so that's what they did. They prayed, and it says immediately God gave them what? Boldness. Right away. And the church continued to grow. And that kind of brings us to where we are today. The end of chapter 4, verse 32. And we're going to read the text, and as we read it today, it's really simple outline. This is really about the church. Remember, the, we, we saw the birth of the church as supernatural birth, and then we saw the first persecution of the church. Now we're going to see the first sin in the church and how the church dealt with it. Why is that important? Well, because the church is like the bride of Christ. That's the analogy Paul uses. And the bride needs to be pure. Well, you go, none of us are perfect. That's true. But that, that doesn't mean the standard goes away. And that's what we do. We, we say, well, you know, if I can't be perfect, why should I shoot for the standard? This is not legalism either, guys. But God has set a standard for us. And for His church. And, it, and, and Paul took it seriously. Paul has very very strong words in Corinthians for people who think they can take the grace of God and use it for license to go do things that are abhorrent to God. And we have built whole church denomination, not denominations, I should say. Well, they, they really are. Seeker-sensitive movements to make people who are living in sin willfully choosing to do things God says not to do feel comfortable in our gathering. And that is almost unthinkable in biblical days. They, they did not compromise that way. They didn't use those methods to reach people. We're going to see today how did God deal with somebody who was in the body but sinful? And we're going to see his stance on that. So two things as we look at this text. 
Acts 4, 32 through 5, really we're going to get through about 13 today, that God calls His church, first of all, to be a church of unity. A church of unity. That was His prayer in John 17. He wanted them to be one as what? The Father, the Spirit, and the Son were one. How's that working out for us? Is a church unified? More divided today than it's ever been. But that's what God calls us to do. So, so how can we change that? Well, it starts with us individually being unified with other believers because we are the church. See, we can't just attach the meaning to the church to a building. We've got to start thinking believers. When I meet a believer, if that brother or sister is a believer in Christ, we are the church. And so it starts being unified with other believers. That, that, God wants that. Jesus prayed that to the Father. And we see that here with new believers. Never been trained in it, but it was because the Spirit was there. The second thing He calls the church to is to be a church of purity. And we have so compromised this. Why? Because that's really dogmatic. That's really traditional. That's really, you know what? That's unrealistic in our culture. Do you know the kind of people we're dealing with? So we relax the standards of purity. Oh, it's okay. And we don't confront people on issues. Knowing issues that they are involved in and we don't go to them even though they're professing believers. And we're going to see... God's take on that. So let's read the text and we'll come back and uh, just go through the text. It's not, it's very self explanatory. There's really not a lot of explanation needed in this. It just speaks for itself a lot. Um, so Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 513. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. This is 20,000 people. Somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people. One heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Guys, by the way, that's not communism. That's not socialism. That's just holy perspective on money. That it's not yours. It's God's. And these are God's people and their needs. And if God wants to meet those needs, I'm not holding on to it. In fact, it goes on to say, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. You see, it's all an act of God's grace. Luke wanted that to be clearly stated when he was writing this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it was God's grace that was moving them to feel this way. It's not some personal uh, character of these people. These are broken people just like you and me, but God's grace was on them. The Spirit was ruling them at that moment. 
And it says in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. I want you to imagine for a second, Phil, you sell your house, it's paid for. Jeff, Ron, Dawa has needs. You sell, you go, you know these needs are great. You sell your house and you just go and dump the money right here. And say, okay, Doug, whatever you think needs to happen with that, however it can help, I'm just trusting you to do it. I mean, I've never heard of anybody in our culture doing anything like that. I've heard of people giving and helping out of abundance. I've even heard of some sacrificial giving, but not at that level. Where these people, so you got to understand, in that culture, land was everything. I mean, if you had a plot of land, that wasn't just yours, that was your family's after you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was something that was there as a gift of the Most High God to provide for you and your family. Because it wasn't just a place for you to go hang your hat. It was a, how you produced income. And these people sold it and brought it and laid it And they didn't say, hey, we want you to help this person over here or this person over here. We're giving it to you, but you got to do this with it. Which is what happens in most churches today. Because why? Well, I want this to go to this person. I want it to go to this person. I'm giving, but you got to give it this way. Because there's not a lot of trust a lot of times in the leadership. It's just the way it is. There's a lot of corruption. A lot of false shepherds. A lot of bad shepherds. But that not here. You've got to understand, 20-something thousand people here, and you've got 120 that are there who have been following Jesus, and you've got 12 of those who are really kind of leading it all. And they just bring it and dump it out there and give it to them and say, whatever the needs are great, you know, you take care of it and you do it as you see fit. It's God's. It's not mine. That's what's going on. And he gives an illustration at the end. He said, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. Did you know his name was Joseph, by the way? A lot of people don't ever know him as Joseph. That was his name. Barnabas was a nickname. Because Barnabas means son of comfort, son of encouragement. Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Thank you, Luke, for helping us with that. We wouldn't have figured that out. A Levite from the tribe of Levi, a native of Cyprus, not even from Jerusalem, but of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Just laid it right there. There it is, however you need it. But, chapter 5, verse 1. You know when you see but in the Scripture, it's usually not a good thing. Unless it says, but God. If it has God after it, it's going to be a good thing. 
But if it doesn't have God, it's usually not a good thing. But a man named Ananias... By the way, you know what Ananias means? It means the Lord is gracious. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Same words as Barnabas. By the way, when it says kept back for himself, that Greek word there actually means has a meaning to steal. So it wasn't just lying. It wasn't just a lying about what he was going to give. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men arose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. Why? They didn't embalm people then. They just took him out right there. you got to remember, where's he at? Where did he fall out at? Where were they bringing? Where were the disciples meeting with everybody? They were at Solomon, the portico of Solomon, probably, or they were over in the temple area. That's where you're going to get that many people. And Ananias, they were bringing the money and laying it down to them, there to be distributed to people. You can't have a dead guy over in the temple. You got to get him out right away. So they took him out right away. Now his wife, Sapphira, she was back at the house doing whatever. Three hours later, her husband never came back. She's thinking he's going to come back bringing news. Hey, I took the money over there. Everybody thinks we're something now. We did like Barnabas. But he doesn't come back. So three hours later, she shows up. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. In other words, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this amount of money that your husband brought? Yes, we did. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? In other words, do you think you can lie to God? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. <coughs> Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, 
but these people held them in high esteem. You want to grow the church? Start killing sinners, man. You think he really told her how much he sold the house for? I think Peter told her. I think Peter said, I think what it's saying there is. No, I think he did. That. No, it says, with his wife's knowledge. That's in the text. It says, he sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he held back. He stole. Basically, what Ananias did was, he either made a vow that we're going to sell this and we're going to bring this money, and he brought less, indicating it didn't sell for what they thought it would or whatever, but he held back and he tried to present a spirituality that wasn't there. He cared more about the glory of man than the glory of God. And and so here's the thing. God was so gracious to give Sapphira a chance to repent. I mean, the, the truth is, when Peter confronted Ananias, I believe he probably had a chance to repent too, but he didn't. He did, there's nothing that he did, nothing said that he did. I don't know if he had repented if God wouldn't have taken him anyway because of what happened. But first, notice about this last part of chapter 4 this being a church of unity what they were one heart and soul they had everything in common does that describe us does that describe believers in our culture no that was Jesus prayer in John 17 lord i pray not only for these but those that come after me, that they may be one like you and me and the Spirit are one. There's no closer bond than those three. So why has that become so low on our totem pole? I mean, that should be our one of our priorities, right? That we should be in community. Do you know how lacking we are in community and unity within the body of Christ? In this country, this is one reason that our whole country is upside down is because we've not been about God's business and we've not been about being His body, the bride of Christ, in unity together. And notice what it says in verse 33. When they were unified, it says there was great power in their testimony. Great grace was upon them. Why? Because they were doing what God wanted them to do. They were being together. We wonder why we have no power today. Because we're not doing what God wants us to do. We should be one with each other. When I see Ron at the gym, that's my brother. When I see Riley at the gym, that's my brother. I would lay my life down for those guys. When I see Jay, if I know you need something, I want to help you with that. We should want to help each other. 
No, well, I really like to help, but I can't. I, I, I'd like to, brother. You know, I really would. I, I just don't have the time. And when you've got shepherds and leaders that don't have the time and they don't model it, then the people follow after that. Because the people do what the leaders model. It's just the way it is. And so, we gotta, we, we, we've, we've got to start asking God to change us in this area. Because these people, these were young believers. These people had just come to faith. It's not like they had been trained and training on how to be unified as a church. They had the Spirit. Thousands of these people were there. No food, no jobs, no homes. And there was a need there. And it says no one held on to anything. Why? They knew it was God's. They knew it was for His glory. They knew it was for His purposes. When's the last time you heard a message about God's resources being His? Not so you can give to a building program, but His resources. His resources. Don't hold on to money. Don't hold on to it, guys. I promise you, if you are His child and you try to hold on, He will rip it out of your hands. Because He will not let it be an idol to you if you're His. They trusted in the apostles. They laid it down at their feet. They didn't go to them with pre-existing conditions of how that money was to be used. They didn't even get a tax write-off. The Romans could care less about uh, writing off taxes for them. They just gave it. There was no benefit to them other than they just saw a need and they met a need. And Joseph, Barnabas, son of encouragement, laid it there too. And he was an example. And you know why? You know what Luke's doing here? You know why he's mentioning Barnabas here? There were lots of people there. Who's going to be one of the prominent people we see in the rest of Acts? Barnabas. Do you know almost every time you see Barnabas' name, He's giving somebody something or encouraging somebody. This brother is a picture of what we should be like in the body of Christ. That's why Luke's introducing him here. And then what he's doing is he's introducing a contrasting character in Ananias and Sapphira. Saying this is what it looks like to be in the Spirit. This is what it looks like when you're a believer because I believe they were believers. You know why? Because if you go back to verse 32 of chapter 4, it says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And guess what? I think they believed. I think they were true believers. But Satan comes in. Listen, if you're a believer, you can't be possessed. The, the, the Satan can't come in and possess you but he can't influence you. And he can deceive you. And he goes in, he goes, okay, this persecution from the outside's not working. Let's try it on the inside. And so he tries to sow in seeds like the, the guy who plants. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the guy who 
puts in the tares with the wheat. Here he's trying to sow a seed within the church. How's it done? It's pretty good, actually. Because you see it all throughout churches around the country and around the world. Those same seeds. There's lots of Ananias and Sapphira's in the world who have a spiritual pretense. They want to present something that shows they're not who they are. It's called hypocrisy. That's why we have to be a church of purity. And God felt so strongly about it that He popped them dead right there on the spot. I mean, aren't you glad He doesn't do that today with us when we put on a spiritual pretense? Have you ever done that, Ken? Have you ever put on a pretense? I have. I'll pray for you. I never prayed for you. Hey, I prayed for you last night. I never prayed for you. You guys never done that? I wish I could help, man. I really do. I wish I could help you. No, you don't. No, you don't. When it says kept back, it means to steal. You see, their sin was not keeping back the money. That was not their sin. Peter said, listen, you, had, you didn't even have to sell the property. It was all voluntary. It wasn't commanded. There's, we have this idea in our culture, and some people take it from this, that it's wrong to have resources that it's wrong to keep resources to yourself. The sin that he's dealing with here is not not giving the money. The sin is making people think that you're more spiritual than you are. That's called hypocrisy. And it's from Satan. And it's in the heart. It's a heart sin. To think that you could lie to the Holy Spirit. To think you, you know, there are no secret sins with God. You may fool me. You may fool your wife. You may fool your kids. You can't fool God. There are no secret sins in heaven. He sees it all. Everything's exposed. We are opened up like a fish fillet, man. We are opened up. Everything. And He sees it. And He's not called, you know. He wants us to have a standard of perfection. Why? Because He wants us to want purity. But He understands we're not going to be perfect. That's why Jesus came. You know, the other day I met a guy and he had spent time in prison for a drug addiction. He had done bad things. A lot of bad things. And he said, you know, will you pray for me? And I said, sure. Why? Because he, he, I told him I was a preacher. I was a pastor and minister. And he said, why? will you pray for me? I said, sure. Is everything okay? He said, well, I'm really struggling because I messed up my life so bad. And I, I don't know what to do. I'm so messed up. I've ruined everything. And I've been in and out of jail. And I just, I think I'm unredeemable. And I go, No. You are who He came for. You are the one He came for. This is why Jesus came. You you are why He came. 
He just wants you to receive Him. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to trust Him. It's not beyond you. But that doesn't mean we lower the standard of purity. The purity has to be there. Hypocrisy, guys, is one of the greatest enemies of the church because Jesus was strong about it in Matthew 23. In fact, you can turn there. Why you do? Let me just remind you what Job says. Job takes the word hypocrite in the King James Version. In the ESV, it's godless. It's used for the same... It's translated hypocrite in the King James and the authorized version, but in the ESV, it's godless. Job 13, 16, the godless or the hypocrite shall not come before him. Job 25, the joy of the godless or the joy of the hypocrite is only for a moment. Jesus was so strong in it. Matthew 23, and I'm not going to read it all. Seven times in that text. In fact, I'm not even going to read it. I was going to read it. It's just we don't have time. But Mark 23, go back. Read through what Jesus says. The bottom line is, He's saying that a hypocrite is a lying life. It's a mask. You wear a mask all the time. That's what it means in the Greek. Hypocrisy is a deceptive presentation of one's spiritual condition. It's a deceptive... That was their sin. They were trying to present that they were more spiritual than they were. It dilutes the church's power. It disrupts the church's unity. And it destroys the church's testimony. It's a difference between being superficially committed on one side, that's Ananias and Sapphira, and then over here you got Barnabas who is spiritually surrendered. That's the difference. There's a superficial commitment here and a spiritual surrender here. It wasn't that they didn't give everything. Selling was voluntary. The motive for them, for Ananias and Sapphira, was not to help the poor, but to build their own ego. They sought the glory of man over the glory of God. God hates it. You know what it reminds me of? I want to give you two texts in the Old Testament. You can go back and read them as well. Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu. They're Aaron's sons. I am going to read from that real quick. And this was helpful for me this morning, just to be real honest with everything going on in my life. God, Moses said, what happened is Nadab and Abihu were Aaron's sons. They were priests. They offered unauthorized fire. In other words, they did something that God did not authorize them to do. God struck them dead on the moment, right in the middle, like just like with Ananias and Sapphira. He took them down. And this is what Moses said in verse 3 of chapter 10. This is what the Lord said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And, a, and before all the people, I will be glorified. God doesn't share His glory with man. 
over in verse 6, do not, he tells Aaron, the father, and the two brothers, don't let the hair of your head hang loose. Don't tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. Why? He's saying don't mourn their death. Don't mourn their death. What they did was offensive to me. What you should mourn is their offense to me. <coughs> Excuse me. That's what you should mourn. That's God's, that's God's view. Do you have that holiness view of God? Over in Joshua chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 7, Achan, something similar to Achan happened that, that happened later to Ananias and Sapphira. The people of Israel just had a great victory. They go into Jericho. They defeat Jericho. And now they're going to go take this small little area called Ai, but they go in and they can't beat it. And they go, what's wrong? And God says, there's sin in the camp. And it's a guy named Achan. And if you go back and read it, he acknowledges he did it. He brings it to Joshua. He says, I have sinned. He was stoned. His family was stoned. His animals were stoned. They were all burned. That's God's view of sin in the camp. And so when Ananias and Sapphira did what they did, thinking they could lie to the Most High God, God says, not in my church. Right after this big victory, this is nothing but satanic. I'm going to make a statement. He wipes them out right there. And I praise God He doesn't do it today or there wouldn't be anybody walking. But God was making a statement. So how do we deal with it today? Well, the way we deal with it today is the way Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 18 when He says, when there's sin, one brother goes to that brother. And if he doesn't listen, then you take two or three witnesses to that brother. And then if they don't listen, then you tell it to the church. And if he still doesn't listen, you say, you're not welcome in the church community right now. And it's symbolic of death. And you know what? I went to a church when I moved to Jacksonville. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to be one more minute. When I moved to Jacksonville, I had never been in a church that had done that before. And when I moved here, it was the first time I ever was in a church that did it. And I thought, wow, I've never seen that before. They're kicking somebody out of a church? But what it was, it was a guy who was in an adulterous affair. He felt like he was in love for the first time in his life. And he wouldn't leave the affair. He was divorcing his wife. And they went to him. He was a long-term member of the church. They said, this is wrong. Two people went to him. He said, I don't care. I'm in love. Third person goes back. I mean, they, go, they bring it before the church. People pray for him. They encourage him. He still doesn't. So they say, okay, we're turning you over to Satan pretty much. You're out of the church community. That's okay. I'll just go find another church. And that's what he did. He went and found another church where they would accept that. that see, that's the problem when there's no unity. You can find something. Go read 2 Corinthians 13 and how Paul dealt with it. Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Paul had strong words. He said, I'm coming. If you're doing this stuff I'm talking about on the testimony of two or three witnesses, we're going to deal with it. We're going to deal with it.
don't don't miss what it says at the end none of the rest dared join them there was fear there why non-believers should not feel comfortable in the gathering of believers if they are so still consumed with their own desires for worldly things they should feel uncomfortable that's why I have such a problem with seeker-sensitive churches trying to make everybody feel comfortable with their sin. God doesn't do that. We're the bride of Christ as a church. I'm not talking about outreach events. I'm talking about the gathering of the body. The reason they don't like church, the, way they, the reason they don't join, John 3 says, because they like the darkness rather than the light. So, my three takeaways, real quick. <clears throat> These are just personal takeaways for me. One is the gravity of our sin to God. Do I really view sin the way I should? Especially the sin of hypocrisy. There's lots of examples of that. A lot of different things. I won't. I mean, you know, you know what I'm talking. Everybody understands that. Second is the importance of regarding our conscience. Every guy in this room knows when your conscience is pricked. Don't disregard that. And third, the necessary or the necessity of church discipline. A good, I mean, it's just a good thing for the church. Because we are deceivers by nature, we live in a deceptive world, our tendency is to want to be deceptive. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. Therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. The body can only enjoy health and function when each part is passing truth to the brain, Right? That's why leprosy is such a terrible disease because leprosy is not passing truth to the brain. If you have leprosy and you can't feel heat, you go toward a fire, it's not passing truth to the brain. And what happens? Your hand burns up and it falls off. That's why leprosy is used as an analogy for sin, guys. Every part of the body. So if some guy in this group is involved with something you shouldn't be and you know it, the most loving thing you can do is go up to that person and say, hey, brother, listen, I'm not judging you because I'm not your judge, but this is not right according to what God says, and you are God's child. So, Father, thank you for this reminder today of the holiness you desire, the purity you desire in your church. And I thank you for the unity, Lord, that you've called us to because it's a good thing to be unified, to have community together. I thank you for every man in here, Lord, for who these men are here because they want to know your word. They want to be in unity. And Lord, I pray that we would walk out those doors as your warriors seeking how we can best serve you in the body of Christ. Let us have the same attitude of Barnabas and all the other believers, Lord, who truthfully sought to be your kingdom warriors in the world. Let us not hold on to any of our own stuff. Let's see it all as yours and use us for your glory. Help us to be a pure bride, an attractive bride. 
We love you and we praise you, Father. Amen.